Shalom everyone, this is Ashira Yosefa in Jerusalem. Today we will begin a new series for the month of June entitled Learning from Noah and Following Avraham. I was at a shiur on Shabbat afternoon that was given by Rebbetz and Rachel Trugman from Moshav Moda'in. She spoke on the Kabbalistic significance of the month of Sivan, which we are now in, today being the 12th of Sivan. The Hebrew letter Zion is the letter associated with the month of Sivan, and the constellation associated with Sivan is Gemini. The energy of the month is one of connecting. More interestingly, though, the Kabbalistic theme of the month of Sivan is the Rainbow Covenant, namely the seven universal laws. This is the month for B'nai Noach, the righteous God-fears among the nations. God willing, in the weeks that follow, we will discuss some of the basics of belief and Torah that are inherent in following the seven universal laws. But today, we are going to address some of the very real and not so easy challenges that one inevitably faces when their belief system begins to change. We will start with Torah, knowing that if we acknowledge Him in all our ways, He will direct our paths. So we will look at some of the biblical heroes who experienced a dramatic change in their belief system, such as Avraham, Yitro, and Ruth. We will discover that life really has not changed that much over the centuries when it comes to changing one's faith. After we look at the Torah examples, my special guest today, Helene Finkelstein, a holistic life coach here in Jerusalem, will take the microphone to share from her professional experience in these areas following which I will open the mics so that we can have dialogue on these important issues. Cornelius, welcome to the class. And again, Janice, welcome to the class. So, who are some of the notable rebels of their time who chose to question the religious environment in which they lived? Abraham is obviously the first to come to mind. He was the first and the quintessential convert Abraham became the father of monotheism, the father of all converts to belief in the one true God of Israel, whether they be God-fears from among the nations or actual converts to Judaism. The Talmud and the Midrashim tell us that Abraham and his wife Sarah converted tens of thousands of people from pagan idolatry to belief in the one true God. The name God bestowed upon him, Avraham, is an acronym for Av Hamum Goyim, Father of Many Nations. Last week I shared that Rabbi Uziel Malevsky, in his Parsha commentary on Lech Lecha, states that this name conveys the meaning that eventually Avraham would become the spiritual leader of all mankind. Rabbi Malevsky notes that according to traditional belief, this aspect of God's promise has yet to be fulfilled. In the future, Avraham's ideals will become the paramount theology in the world. May we merit to see this happen in our days. The last Rebbe of Lubavitch commented in a letter to Chaplain Brigadier General Israel Draznan on the dramatic effect that global observance of the seven universal laws would have. He wrote, quote, there is, of course, no need to emphasize to you the importance of promoting these seven Noahide commandments among Gentiles. In our day and age, it does not require much imagination to realize, by way of example, 
Had these divine commandments been observed and adhered to by all children of Noah, namely the nations of the world, individually and collectively, there would not have been any possibility in the natural order of things for such a thing as a holocaust. End quote. If only the seven universal laws had not fallen into obscurity, perhaps then mankind could have avoided or mitigated dramatically the holocaust, perhaps reacting to its horrors at the onset and not after so many deadly years. Getting back to Avraham, he certainly did not start out as a pioneering religious rebel. As a child and a younger man, Avraham was Avram. Rashi tells us that Avram was 75 years old when he and Sarah left Haran for Canaan. Mind you, he had been actively teaching monotheistic belief in Hashem for some years prior to that. So much so that the Midrashim tell us that Avram and his entire family, father included, were forced to leave ur -Kazdin. Excuse me, we just, we can hold on for a second. We seem to have a slight missing text. Okay, the text seems to have eluded us, but that's okay. We're just going to go anyway. Avraham and his father were forced to leave Orakazdim. Now, Avraham, the Midrashim tell us that when he was a baby, something rather dramatic happened. You see, Terach, his father, was a very esteemed nobleman in the court of King Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, as you'll recall, fashioned himself as a self-created god, and he demanded that all of the people in his kingdom, all his subjects, bow down to him and worship him. Terach, Avram's father, was one of those subjects and was one of his, his really esteemed noblemen. So along came the time that Nimrod's astrologers had this vision that a child would be born in Nimrod's kingdom who would grow to refute and deny the deity of Nimrod. As a result of this advice from his astrologers, Nimrod issued an edict that all of the male babies were to be killed. The Midrashim tell us that over 700,000 baby boys were killed. Terach, having such a favored position with the king, had managed to get a pardon, an exception for his baby boy, and that baby boy, of course, was Avraham. However, time went on, and astrologers came back again to King Nimrod. When they came back, they had had another vision, and they told Nimrod that the trouble still persisted, the danger was still there. Not only was it in his kingdom, it was coming from the house of Terach. So Nimrod sent his messengers to Terach's house, demanding that Terach hand over his baby son. Terach managed to orchestrate events in such a way that the messengers had to come back a second time. In the period of time between their visits, Terach had his wife, Amtali, take Avram and hide him in a cave away from the house. When Nimrod's messengers returned, he substituted his maid's child, his maid's baby boy, for Avram. And the messengers left, assuming that they had Terak's son with them. And of course, the handmaid's child was killed.
Now Avram grew up for many years in a cave. And the Midrashim tell us that in those early years, really isolated from the idolatrous religions that were around him, Avram began to question. His young mind was curious, and so he looked about him. He considered creation. He considered nation. He considered nature. And he began to question. And he realized that there had to be a power that was above it all. In the land where he had grown up, I mean, obviously Nimrod demanded worship. But the people, since ancient times, had worshipped creation. Avram realized that there was a pattern to creation that indicated that there was something beyond creation that was infusing creation with those powers and that life. Nonetheless, he allowed himself to question, to search, to examine, to use his intellect to refute and reject the religious systems that surrounded him. He did not turn away from the inner voice that prompted him to seek truth. The Midrashim tell us that Avram would actively discourage people from purchasing the idols in his father's shop. Um, Ray, are you telling me that my mic disappeared? I indicate I'm still recording. We seem to have an a problem with the mic. Is the sound coming through? Uh, this is a sound test. Is the microphone back? Okay, it seems that we have some software difficulties. Uh, the transmission is not going through. Janice, can you hear me? Wonderful. Okay, so Ray, if you could just, uh, all right. Sorry for the gap in the, the uh, recording. It seems that there was some microphone difficulties, so we'll pick up where we left off. Avram was born into a society that was devoid of the God, but filled with many small g-gods. Nonetheless, he allowed himself to question, to search, to examine, to use his intellect to refute and reject the religious systems that surrounded him. He did not turn away from the inner voice that prompted him to seek truth. The Midrashim tell us that Avram would actively discourage people from purchasing the idols in his father's shop. One day, when Avram was left to tend the shop, he took an axe and smashed all the idols in the shop except the largest one. When Tarach returned and flew into a rage, Avram blamed the destruction on the sole remaining idol. When his father exclaimed, What nonsense is this? 
You know very well that they neither speak nor move around. Avram retorted, Is that so? Pray think about what you just admitted. Why then do you serve them? On another occasion, when he and his father were attending an event at Nimrod's palace, Avram took a huge exhibition of idols and piled them all up in the courtyard, then set fire to them. The sages tell us that this marked the first of Avram's ten trials. He had applied his mind to recognize his creator and rejected idol worship. He passed the test, but there were repercussions to his actions. He would soon face his second trial. Nimrod had Avram thrown into prison for ten years for torching his idols. At the end of his sentence, Avram was brought to appear before Nimrod once again. This time Nimrod demanded Avram worship fire with him. Avram suggested they should worship the water that has the power to extinguish fire. Nimrod agreed. Then Avram suggested worshiping the clouds that carry the water. They must be stronger still. Nimrod agreed. Ah, but what about the wind that carries the clouds, counted Avram. And so it went until Nimrod realized he was being shown up as a fool and commanded that Avram be cast into a burning furnace. As with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, centuries later, God protected Avram from the flames, striking terror even into the heart of the mighty Nimrod. His second trial passed. Avram and his father Terach gathered up their families and fled Urkazdim to the land of Haran. Avraham was then 70 years old. In Haran, Avram called public meetings to proclaim the truth of the one creator, and he spoke about the obligation to serve him. He would spend hours debating with people following these public lectures. The Midrashim tell us that Avram wrote books with a total of 400 chapters devoted to demonstrating the futility of idol worship and that tens of thousands acknowledged the existence of Hashem. Five years later, Avram received God's call to leave for Canaan. Avraham founded a revolutionary movement which called into question the basis of every existing religion in his day. It was in every way an overt, grassroots movement, with Avram boldly proclaiming his discoveries about God to anyone and everyone who would listen. As a result, he was criticized, ridiculed, avoided by some people and feared by others. He was imprisoned and he faced an attempt on his life. Finally, he was forced to flee his land. Avram was a lonely revolutionary who dared to go against the flow of the world of his time. The reactions he experienced in response to his refutation of the prevailing religions are all reactions that people still experience today when they leave established and basically fundamentalist religious systems. Does any of it sound familiar? If your life is beginning to bear some of the trademarks of Avraham, then you are undoubtedly well on the way to learning from Noah and following Avraham, the theme of our classes this month. Although Avraham is the forefather of Am Israel, in the Torah, he is not known as a Jew, but as an Ivri, a Hebrew. Ivri, from the root Ayin Betresh, is that which passes over, that which goes beyond. Abraham went from the constraints of this world, as man knows it, to the world as God knows it.
Now, what about Yitro? The Torah Shemiktav, the written Torah, does not really tell us too much about Moshe's Midianite father-in-law, but the Torah Shabbat Alpeh tells us a lot. Yitro was a powerful midnight priest who, before repenting, worshipped every idol known to man. Chazal tell us that all the amenities and privileges of life were accessible to Yitro. During his earlier years, he had served as an advisor in Pharaoh's court. When Pharaoh sought to enslave the Jewish people, Yitro advised against it, and he was forced to flee from Egypt. The written Torah picks up the story years later in Midian when Moshe saved Yitro's daughters from a group of less-than-chivalrous shepherds at the town well and ended up marrying Yitro's daughter Sipporah and tending his father-in-law's flocks. Yitro reappears in Tanakh when he comes to Moshe in the desert, the Midbar, having heard about the plagues in Egypt and God's miraculous deliverance of the Israelites at Yom Suf. It is at this point that both the written and oral Torah become very interesting and intriguing. In fact, the Parsha Hashivua that contains the giving of the Ten Commandments, the account of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, is named Yitro. Think about that. One of the most central portions of Torah to the Jewish people, the giving of the Torah itself, is named after a Gentile, who was once an idolatrous Midianite priest. Now, Hazal are divided as to whether or not Yitro actually converted to Judaism or simply took upon himself and his family the seven universal laws. But the sources are consistent in their agreement that when Yitro parted company with Moshe and the Israelites, an account contained in Numbers 10, he returned to Midian believing in the one true God and intending to teach his transformed beliefs to others. The wording in the Hebrew of Parsha Yitro is a little ambiguous. So some of Hazal suggest Yitro may have left a few days before the giving of the Torah, but the majority favor the opinion that Yitro was present at Matan Torah and left for Midian four months later during Tishri. Esoteric texts point out that the gematria of Yitro's name adds up to 613, equal to the number of the commandments of Torah, and offer this as a further indication that Yitro was at Mount Sinai for the giving of the Torah and that he did convert. Exodus 18 verse 5 tells us, Yitro came to Moshe to the Midbar, wilderness, of which desert is one kind where he, Moshe, was camped. Now, wilderness can be both physical and spiritual, as anyone who has changed their religious beliefs can well attest. You literally experience a spiritual wilderness, often a time of feeling spiritually dry, as if in a desert. But then the prophet Hosea, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, foretells that God will draw Israel back to him by way of the desert, where he will speak to their hearts and they will respond as when he first brought them up from Egypt. So we see from this that this desert experience is an integral part of the return process. Rashi comments on the Hebrew wording on Exodus 18 verse 5 and draws from it a reference to Yitro's spiritual transformation from idolatry to monotheism. 
I would like to quote a passage from an article submitted to Shuvu by Daniel Nachoneki of Bethel. Daniel writes, quote, Since Moshe and Amazrael were obviously in the Midbar, writing the word Midbar creates a redundancy, which Rashi points out and clarifies. To the Midbar. Didn't we also know that he, Moshe, was in the Midbar? Instead, the word Midbar is coming to teach us Yitro's praise. What is that? He, Yitro, had been living in and at the epitome of honor and acclaim in the world, yet his heart urged him to go to the Midbar, to an unformed desolation, to hear the words of Torah. In this one word, Rashi opens up the whole understanding of what Yitro did and what Yitro is. With the inclusion of this one single word, Midbar, the Torah speaks volumes. Oblivious to the argument that has already started about when Yitro came and at what prompting, the Torah juxtaposes two words, Yitro and Midbar. Yitro, explains Rashi, is the embodiment of all the acclaim, accomplishments, fulfillment, success, honor, and glory that are achievable in this world. Nothing was beyond his grasp, and nothing was denied him. With full awareness of this, the Parsha begins, Yitro heard what God did, to which Rashi interprets that his heart urged him. What does it mean that his heart urged him? It means either that Yitro had already internalized what he'd heard, or that Yitro had been listening with his heart. Yitro, the embodiment of worldly striving, leaves the epicenter of civilization for a place of unformed desolation. He literally went from one pole to its opposite. What did Yitro hear? Yitro heard beyond what the ear and the mind hear. Yitro heard the urgings of his heart. Yitro heard that which only the heart can hear. Yitro heard love. Yitro heard the love of God moving in this world, the love of God coming to act and to rest on his people. Yitro, the embodiment of civilization, left the epitome of civilization to go to the Midbar, an unformed desolation. Why did he follow his heart? Because he wanted to hear words of Torah. Because he wanted to hear God's love for his people because he wanted to hear God's love letter. When it came to Torah, Yitro followed his heart. In Exodus 18, verse 11, we can find Yitro's proclamation of a transformed faith. Yitro said, Now I know that Hashem is greater than all gods. In Exodus 18:12, Yitro tells us, where we are told that Yitro brought a burnt offering, an olah, and sacrifices, zavachim, for God, and that Moshe and Aharon and all the elders of Israel joined with Yitro to partake of the sacrificial meal from the zavachim. But wait! Remember from our previous class on Noah how he brought an olah offering to Hashem after he had left the ark? What does an olah offering represent? It represents complete dedication to God. Yitro had passed over from idolatry to faith in the one true God.
Now, without a doubt, we can assume that upon returning to Midian, Yitro encountered a loss of status and reputation, opposition, disbelief, resistance, criticism, perhaps even isolation from his former friends and community. As did Avraham, Yitro dared to go beyond the constraints of the world he'd grown up in, and so too have many of you. Now let's briefly look at Ruth before we turn our attention from our Torah mentors to the present time. Ruth is highly acclaimed as a convert to Judaism, especially at this time of the year around Shavuot. Megillat Ruth is read during the morning prayers on the festival of Shavuot. After all, the Torah was given to Israel together with the command that Israel was to live according to Torah in order to be a light to the nations. Ruth's words to Naomi, Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Ruth chapter 1 verse 16 Have resonated in the heart of converts for centuries as they have gone through the intense transformation that comes with a true orthodox conversion. In fact, the rabbis consider Ruth's words to be the archetypal form of declaration that should be made by the sincere convert. What might have escaped the notice of many, however, is the odds Ruth faced in her quest to join Am Israel. Ruth was a Moabite a descendant of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Not only were Israelite men forbidden to marry foreign wives, but the Torah tells us in Deuteronomy 23 verse 4 that the Ammonite and the Moabite shall not come into the congregation of God. Even the tenth generation of theirs shall not come into the congregation of God forever. The Midrash tells us that it was commonly thought that Naomi's sons had died prematurely precisely because they had married Moabite wives. Because of Ruth's completely self-nullifying statement of commitment and the fact she followed through with actions that demonstrated her total commitment to the God, the Torah, and the people of Israel, the rabbis say that she was permitted to enter the congregation of God even though she was born a Moabitess. But let's face it, Ruth was up against very steep odds. She would not exactly have been welcomed into the community with open arms. At least she wasn't at first. One can well imagine that at least some of the men in the community probably avoided her like the plague, lest they too perish, as did her husband. What would Ruth have felt? Probably loneliness, rejection, isolation, perhaps overwhelmed by the uncertainty of the path that lay before. Have you ever felt any of these? Frequently I receive emails with comments such as the following, and I quote, My family has pretty much disowned me. They think I'm a heretic, demon-possessed, etc. My husband doesn't go to church, so he doesn't care a lot what I believe but he really doesn't like me believing the Jewish way. This was from Abat Noach. And another. We've been through it all, from Messianic, a church with a thin veneer of Jewish culture, 
to the gut-wrenching realization that it's all wrong. It has been most difficult for us, incredibly difficult, to abandon everything that you have known to be true and to be in a constant state of grappling has been so difficult for us. And a third, Ashira, I dare not whisper of the possibility that I am even considering challenging my own understanding of who the Messiah is. I have seen that to even question out loud, all hell breaks loose. I have no desire to have this kind of strife while I am in research mode. And a fourth, I have come to this place that I know nothing, absolutely nothing. I have this picture of myself standing in the middle of a desert in a strong wind, and I'm alone. I pray Hashem hasn't forgotten about me. These are just four of hundreds of emails that are similar that I've received just in the last couple of years. These are true testimonials. If you have broken away from your previous faith, it has had an impact on your life, and probably a profound one. By times you may have felt confused, bitter, empty, perhaps a bit guilty. You may have felt depressed, concerned about the future, and found it difficult to connect with other people or life in the world at large feeling like a stranger in your own land. As alone as you may feel, you are not alone. There are hundreds of thousands on this same journey throughout the world. We are witnessing one of the largest and quietest moves of God in history as he quickens the nations to his Torah, one from a town and two from a clan, as the prophet Jeremiah described it. Changing one's beliefs Leaving a formerly cherished faith is, a, is very much like going through a divorce. The symptoms are similar. Feelings of betrayal, grief, anger, depression, lowered self-esteem, and social isolation. You may well be shunned by your family members, and many have also experienced actual marriage breakup and divorce as a result of changing their religious beliefs. There is a great deal in all of this to cause anxiety and stress. But while it may all be painful and confusing at first, even though it can bring feelings of tremendous freedom, there is much to be learned in the desert experience, and ultimately a profound spiritual maturity can be gained together with a truly satisfying sense of spiritual identity. Now, I'd like to introduce to you Helene Finkelstein. Helene, welcome to the class. Helene is a holistic life coach here in Jerusalem. Helene herself is a balachuva. That means that she has returned in a spirit of chuva, of repentance, to her Torah, to her people, in a much deeper sense than she practiced previously in her life. In that process, she's also experienced some of the very feelings and reactions that we've just discussed. So I'd like to now turn the microphone over to Helene, and Helene will share some of her views on the topic, and then we'll open the mics up and have a discussion. Thank you, Ashira. Shalom, everyone. 
First of all, I'd like to briefly explain the term holistic life coach. It means that I take a holistic approach to healing. I help individuals move into wholeness to find balance and alignment in all areas of their life, spiritual, emotional, and physical. The Hebrew word for wholeness is shalem, which comes from the same root as the word shalom, peace. When one is able to find peace within oneself, it translates into being at peace with others. It is impossible to achieve peace with others without first working on ourselves. In seeking this balance for ourselves, we must acknowledge the three essential elements of our lives, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Our thoughts and emotions are the bridge between our physical and our spiritual selves. All three elements, body, mind, spirit, are equally important and all three are interrelated. Our physical well-being depends on the state of our thoughts as well as the recognition of our spiritual essence. To quote a popular phrase, we are not merely physical beings having an occasional spiritual experience, but rather spiritual beings having a physical experience. This shift in emphasis makes all the difference. Our spiritual needs are equally important as our physical ones. The tremendous changes you are each undergoing in your lives are an acknowledgement of your strong spiritual needs. You are shaking the very foundations of your lives in an effort to con correct what seems to be out of balance for you in this area of your life, and it has tremendous repercussions on all other areas. I would like to focus in this class on your emerging relationship with yourself. For many of you, this is a relationship that has been neglected in the past, and it is now demanding your attention in a very dramatic way. You are acting as an advocate for yourself, perhaps for the first time in your life. It takes tremendous courage to address these challenges, but your sense of well-being demands it. It is extremely important to recognize and to act on your needs, with sensitivity and concern certainly, but action is essential. It is a fundamental belief of Judaism that everything in creation contains a spark of the divine. You, me, everything in the world around us. One of our morning prayers acknowledges that the soul which you placed within me is pure. Neshama shenatata bi tehorahi. Recognition of the self as having a pure essence may be a new concept and one which may require time and effort to absorb. The shift is significant. It is an assumption that you originate from a place of purity and goodness. Throughout your life, you may have heard messages to the contrary. A good starting point in the process of self-evaluation is to ask yourself, can I accept the belief in my goodness? This is an essential first step in your recognition of your self-worth. Once you accept this precept, it then becomes your job in this world to elevate yourself to the level of that goodness. You then become a partner in creation. You make this world a better place by elevating yourself 
to your pure essence. You assume individual responsibility for being loving, just, honest, for being true to yourself. This is not a matter of self-aggrandizement, but rather a humble recognition of your self-worth. The word halakha, the Jewish code of law or commandments, comes from the same root as the word lalechet, which means to walk. Thus the Torah and its commandments are a framework, a guide on how we are to walk in this world. Since each of us are accountable for our actions, we must examine the thoughts and emotions that direct those actions. Do those thoughts and emotions come from a healthy place? Emotional healing is an important part of the process of completing ourselves. The relationship we develop with ourselves is of primary importance. We have to become compassionate listeners as we ask ourselves important questions in this reevaluation of our lives. What are my values? Am I living up to my expectations of myself? Are those expectations reasonable? What beliefs and experiences have shaped who I am? Which values and beliefs do I want to keep and which do I need to discard? What wounds do I need to heal? How do I need to grow in order to become the person I want to be? Am I respecting myself in this process of growth? Am I respecting others and where they are on their journey? Where can we find a meeting place for understanding? Am I willing to cut ties to relationships which no longer work? And where can I get the support I need to make these essential changes in my life? This is an important process of individuation. It is a move away from external control to one of internal control and self-mastery. One of the key patterns you will have to recognize and confront in yourself is the need for approval from others. When do you abandon your needs and feelings in order to win the acceptance of others? You will need to learn to fully accept and appreciate yourself in order to develop a healthy self-esteem. One of the greatest gifts you can give yourself is developing a loving relationship with the one person in your life who will never leave you, you. Be patient. This process takes time and will evolve naturally if you give yourself the attention you need. Keeping a journal can be very helpful. Emotions that have been suppressed will need to come out and you will need to find a safe place to process them. Gaining the support during this process is essential. Building a relationship with yourself means learning to trust your inner guidance. You are coming into alignment with the higher energies of your spiritual self. These energies need to be acknowledged. Know that you already have within you all the inner strength and wisdom you need to direct your own life. Become a skilled listener and learn how to tap into your inner power. You will emerge from this challenging period with greater joy and awareness, a greater understanding of yourself and the world around you.
This I know from first-hand experience. This can be a time of tremendous liberation. You are the artist with a blank canvas before you. You choose the colors, textures, and the characters you wish to include in that portrait. Let it be an expression of your joy of self-discovery. Thank you, Helene. You know, you mentioned about a journal. Um, of course, when we talk about a journal, we immediately think about, you know, a day-to-day -day diary of the things that happened to us. But I recall you mentioning, um, I think it was earlier this week, about an abundance journal, uh, like keeping, keeping record of the things that we're thankful for. Because, I mean, certainly when a person's going through this change, and everything's coming at them, their families are, are against them, their friends won't talk to them, they feel totally isolated. Sometimes you feel really like there's not a great deal to be thankful for. What is this abundance journal that you were talking about? This is something that I, I read from a book called Simple Abundance several years ago. And making that shift of focusing on what I had to be thankful for instead of the difficulties made a huge change for me. And I find myself going back to it now when I feel burdened and, and pressured by all the trials, focusing on those essential things that we have to be thankful for. You're right, because you can often, um, when you're overwhelmed with pressures and stress, we really do forget to take the time to, to smell the flowers, mm -hmm. you know, to to take a look at the many blessings that, that God does give us, even during the hard times. You, know, you were talking about, about the journey that they're on, and I can remember this, this balance. Like you mentioned that you know there's stress, but also there's freedom, because there was a one point back, oh, in the spring of 2003, when I was really coming to grasp with, it was just before I really made public um, the change in my life, and that I was going to convert. And, you know, as I've mentioned before, I mean, at one point I was a spiritual leader within a, a messianic movement. And, you know, certainly I had known for, you know, a year in advance where my beliefs were going, the changes that I was facing. But being a teacher and having my own congregation, I felt a real sense of responsibility. I felt that I had to... Um, gradually keep going and until that I knew for certain that I could explain from Tanakh, from Torah, exactly why I had changed my beliefs, I had to continue to teach but begin to infuse this new understanding, this corrected understanding as I saw it into the teachings. But I remember there was a period of time here in Israel that I had a Kohen um, really uh, cut me down to size. And uh, I knew that I needed it. I mean, I was sort of telling him my little song and dance about where I was in the world. And he let me give my, my presentation. And then he told me, uh, in no uncertain terms, just how much arrogance and pride was coming across in the words that I was saying. And how much presumption. Mm -hmm. And so there was a period of about two weeks after that that I sat on on the, the stoop of a caravan in the Judean desert out past Akoa and just really, let me tell you, it was a physical and it was a spiritual desert experience. Uh, it was like, you know, God, what do you want from me? Why, where are you taking me? What do you want? It was, it was quite an experience. 
And yet at the same time, there was this amazing growing sense of freedom because the more that I studied, the more that I, I searched for truth, and the more that the things I was studying checked out and, and when I tested them they, they were true and I found them credible, there was this sense of freedom at the same time. So it's a re it seems to be a real tug of war. It is, and the greatest barometer is our own inner feelings. Once we get establish that relationship with ourselves and we know what, what it is to be true, nobody can refute our emotions and our feelings. Nobody can refute this drive. We're not all experts in uh, the scriptures and we can't quote things, but we can tell what is true for us, what has that ring of veracity that can't be denied. It reminds me of something that I was told once. I was going through a very difficult period back in the 70s and I had someone come to me uh, and actually it did happen to be a pastor but he came to me and he said feelings are neither right nor wrong they just are. They are. And it doesn't matter you know what as long as you know in your heart that what you're doing, that where you're going, that you're true to yourself and you're true to what you believe to be right, you don't have to explain anything to anyone unless they are involved. And that was something that I've thought of many times in my life, that there really is a wisdom in learning what to say and when to say it and how much to say. Because when a person's going through this change, um, there's so much that people are learning, there's so much new information and so much is so exciting and there's so many questions that often it's easy to just pour it all out to someone and sometimes it can backfire. Can. Okay, now I'm going to open the mic up here and hopefully that this will work without losing anything uh, to see if there's any questions. Are there any questions? Can anybody put something up on the board just to see if there's some questions here before I desynchronize the room? If there's no questions, then we'll continue with some discussion. But if people have questions, just if you would just make an indication on the board and then I will release the, the mics so that we can have an exchange. Cornelius, I think you're trying to say something. So let me just release the mic. Okay. All right. I've released the mic. So I'm going to release my mic. Cornelius, if you would like to pose a question. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? This is, um, <clears throat> I'm just wondering how can a 70-year-old like me, uh, this is such astounding and such, um, such truth that I'm hearing that it's just, uh, it overwhelms me every time I, uh, I hear it. And, and yet it seems to me, um, when will I be able to grasp that, that I can know where I, where I am or where I belong? Well, it's, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, but, but perhaps your expectation of yourself is too great. Um, I have the advantage of knowing Cornelius personally, and I know Cornelius to be a man of incredible integrity and sincerity. Um, I also know that he's a man of high standards and it's very when we have those standards of ourselves um, you know it's so easy to feel torn in this process 
because, you know, we grow up and we've got husbands, wives, children, family, friends, this whole community that we've grown up in and all of a sudden we start going against the flow and it's and we want to as, as because as we're drawing closer and closer and we're strengthening this relationship with Hashem and and we feel that we're coming to a much clearer sense of, of who Hashem is then we want to please him and yet we're also we know that we've got responsibilities that Hashem gave us responsibilities to honor our parents to be responsible for our children and you know responsible people in the society in which he placed us so I think it particularly going through this trans, trans um, formation, this period of transition, I think it's important, don't you, Helene, that that we need to be forgiving of ourselves. Absolutely, it's it's a very delicate balance that we're working with. the The notion of being kind to others and overextending ourselves. Um, this is something that each individual has to work out for themselves. There's no one pat answer for everyone. And everyone has to be able to live with their decisions. So ultimately, it's, it's something that they need to, to work through. Certainly, they can discuss it with others and get a sense of other people's experiences in this. But in the end, the end of the day, it's their decision. You know, a mutual friend of uh, Helene and mine, uh, Dr. Dror Rokevich, uh, Rodkovich. Rodkovich. Uh, Dr. Dror Rodkovich. I was speaking with him oh, three or four weeks ago. And it was during a time that I was, was feeling, he's an incredibly wise and spiritual man, and I was feeling really overwhelmed by a lot of things that was going on. And he had said something to me that uh, Cornelius may help to answer your question, because believe me, I've thought about it many times since. You know, here in Israel in particular, it seems like there really should be 48-hour days. 24 hours just simply is not enough. And, you know, you've got your work, and then, you, you know, you've got your daily prayers, and you've got your daily Torah study that you want to do. And then there's such an abundance of Torah teaching here, and you want to go out and hear the teachers, and then, you know, there's life's normal responsibilities, and all of these things are swirling around you, and you never seem to get everything done in a day that you want to. And Dror said to me, he said, you know, he said, the Torah was given over 3,500 years ago. And ever since that time, the sages have been writing commentaries and lessons and interpretations of the Torah. There is absolutely no way in this world that anyone can possibly learn all there is to learn about Torah. So he said, quit trying. He said, relax. He said, learn what interests you. He said, don't try to learn it all. Take it slowly. He said, go for one thing at a time. Start out with one thing and then really focus on it. He said, follow what, what gets your attention. Follow what interests you. Don't worry about trying to do it all. He said, you know, in, the, in prayer as well, he said, you know, it's better to pray, and a, and a common uh, Torah teacher that Helene and I often go to, Avram Sutton, you know, he says, it is far better that you have quality of prayer than quantity of prayer. That you take portions of your prayers and really connect with Hashem and pray from your heart 
as opposed to trying to accomplish the whole morning prayers, for example. So that's something that might, you know, might be helpful to bear in mind. Now, I see that Ray has asked, mankind is in this present state of disharmony within themselves. Is this why there is so much evil in the world? Ray, uh, Ray that is a good point. Um, the world is in a state of chaos. I think back to the statement I made early in the lesson, uh, the quote from the letter of the Rebbe of Lubavitch, when he was saying, and he's not the only one that I've, I've read quotes from that have said, if only this, the seven universal laws had been known, had been taught, and more people were keeping them, then there would be peace in the world, or there would be more peace in the world, there would be less chaos. The world needs Torah. I mean, the problem is the Torah and, you know, the seven mitzvot, they're Torah. They're, they're, you know, they open to much more Torah. They're part of Torah. The Torah is the song of the universe. It is the blueprint. It is what makes this world tick. And when we don't follow Torah, whether it's the seven universal laws or the 613 for Jews, when we don't follow that, then we're going upstream against the flow and when that happens people aren't we're not responding to God or to man in the way he had created us to and if we continue in that path what happens is is the chaos continues personally I believe that a lot of the disharmony and chaos in the world is because we really need and I, and I say this often when I do presentations uh, to my fellow Jews. The world is waiting for Jews to be Jews. God gave us his Torah, his revelation to share. He gave us a command to share the Sheva Mitzvot as a beginning point of how he wants mankind to be in a relationship with him. And we need to be who we are supposed to be and I think when that happens, there will be a lot less anti-Semitism. I think that Hashem uses anti-Semitism to force Jews to be Jews. Uh, Cornelius, I see you want to say something again. Helene, did you have something you wanted to say on I, that? I just wanted to add that I feel we're moving into a higher vibration of energies. We're moving away and struggling, this internal struggle to move away from our ego consciousness into higher states of consciousness. So moving away from greed and uh, self-centeredness and, and lust into the more expansive energies of caring for humanity and, and higher aspirations of spiritual growth. Now, as I understand it, that's all part of the spirit of Mashiach. That's mm -hmm. all a preparation of mankind for the coming of Mashiach. Wonderful. Okay, Cornelius, did you have another question there? Ray is asking the flow and structure of creation. Yes, um, the Torah is the blueprint of creation. So when we're not keeping the Noahide commandments or for Jews keeping uh, you know, our portion of the Torah, then we are obstructing the natural flow and structure of creation. Uh, just a second, Cornelius, and I'll release the microphone. It, this, this is just um, overwhelming for me to to hear all this, and it's it's uh, I mean it's, it rings so true, and what what makes it hard for me is to grasp how when such such uh, pure teaching or such needful p teaching is coming out that that it it se seems like there is 
<coughs> the 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 ox that is treading the threshing floor has their their mouths muzzled so that they can't eat from what, what they are doing. If you get what I mean, it's it's uh, it seems to me there should be um, there should be a source of um, of um, support for, for for this teaching that it seems to me is is um, so short and it's it's hard to hard to grasp how how people don't um, don't support this better. Well, you know, all things um, start out small. Uh, I had a wonderful meeting with Rabbi Chaim Richman this afternoon in his office. And for those of you who might not know Rabbi Richman, he's the Director of International Marketing for the Temple Institute. But he is also involved with the Developing Sanhedrin. Uh, he has been on the, the Beit Din uh, for B'nai Noach of the Sanhedrin. He's involved in developing the Halakha for B'nai Noach uh, with Rabbi Yol Schwartz and uh, Rabbi Hamun Ever uh, on the, the Beit Din. And we were talking and you know there is so much that is beginning to develop uh, within Judaism and within B'nai Noach to develop and provide resources. I mean, certainly the development of Noahide Nations and the Learning Center, which they now have on their website and which hopefully will soon be uh, integrated into virtual yeshiva, uh, these are incredible resources that just didn't exist before. There are books um, that rabbis here have written, but they're in Hebrew, and they're wonderful books, but you know, we just need to get the resources to get these translated um, even some of the ones that have been translated need to be retranslated into into better English. There, are, you know, the the classes that are being recorded as CDs that are being done uh, that that you Noahide know, Nations is making available. The very fact that Virtual Yeshiva has a Noah chat room and has had it for some time now. These are significant developments. When the the sages when Hazal talk about this preparation, it's called Hevle Mashiach, the birth pangs of Mashiach. And it's known to be, it will be a, a tumultuous time, it'll be a, a time of chaos, because you know something, unfortunately, it takes trouble to really make people come together. It's a sad commentary in humanity, but there's nothing that makes people come together quicker and faster than crisis. It's just the way that it is. Uh, so we can expect that there's going to be this turmoil, and we're going through personal turmoil ourselves as, a per as people you know, leave the religions that they've grown up with all their life. But the rabbis tell us, the sages, particularly I'm thinking of, of the Vilna Gaon and Kol Hator, which is a wonderful book about, uh, about the preparation for Mashiach and the steps, the things that would be done uh, before the coming of Mashiach. And the Ramchal, Moshe Chaim Luzato, they are both very strong in saying that at the beginning, all these things will be bubbling under the surface. But when Hashem, Hashkahapertis, Divine Providence, is known to work with a high level of concealment, it has to, because otherwise the, things wouldn't uh, get past the adversarial forces, if you will. And so anything having to do with this period that we're in, this time when, when God is obviously waking the nations, that he's, a, he's bringing a spirit of, of tshuva, of repentance on, on Jews and on the nations alike, these things are, are developing slowly 
you know, the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of B'nai Noach and hundreds of thousands of people now who believe they're descendants of the Lost Ten Tribes that aren't in Burma or Afghanistan or Ethiopia or in, the, in, the, in Asia. These have been happening for a decade, yet so few people know about it. It's because Hashem is keeping it quiet, because He is preparing things so that at the right moment, everything will come together. And right now, yes, it seems like there's not enough resources to make things go around, to provide the resources that are so necessary. But I know of so many things that are happening here that are just on the verge of being announced. And please, God, it'll be sooner than later. But I think we really can be encouraged that Hashem has control of this and that we are definitely seeing His hand at play and that the wisdom of Shem is not our wisdom, it's higher than ours. And right now, things just need to happen um, in a way that it almost looks like they aren't happening. Okay, I guess, is there any other questions? Okay, Corny says, this teaching is overwhelmingly so breathtaking. To realize that my heart has been cry- what my heart has been crying out for all my life, and finally it is forthcoming. Thank you, Corny. Um, okay, we're coming to the end of our class. Um, I'll just sort of give a bit of a wrap up here, Helene. Do you have any comments that you would like to make before we wrap up? I just want to wish everyone strength on their journey and. Uh, just just to tell them to believe in themselves, believe in their in their truth and and listen to their inner guidance. Okay, now um, before we close for today, first I'd like to apologize for whatever glitch it was that caused our microphones to go down. Uh, hopefully the recording of this class won't be too confusing for the people that hear it later on. Now, next week's class will be on the topic knowing God. How is mankind to know God through his oneness and creation? What is man's obligation to God? Now I know this is a short outline for a class, but I guarantee you we will cover a lot of material. Remember to visit our Shuvu website at www.shuvoo.com. Send us an email at info at shuvu.com and we will subscribe you for our weekly newsletter that notifies you of what's new on the site each week. Also, be certain to visit the Noahide Nation's website at www.noahidenations.com, noahidenations.com. Uh, I was in and looked at their learning center today, and it is absolutely beautiful. Kol HaKavod uh, to Ray and Miriam and everyone at Noahide Nations. I've also been told by Ray that CD collections of the Noahide Nations classes will be produced and made available in their web store for those who would like to purchase them. The weekly schedule of all the classes are up on the website, helpful articles, and much more. And as uh, Cornelius was alluding to, thank you, Corny, for the the support. Uh, Please remember that Organizations such as Noahide Nations, Shuvu, Virtual Yeshiva, and the many others offering teaching on Torah and the Universal Laws are nonprofit organizations, and we are dependent upon the support of our audiences. Please help us continue offering educational and spiritual resources in the future. 
This is the end of the class. Thank you so much. Kol tov, everyone. Be well. Shalom, shalom from Yerushalayim.